to Dharmage. I'm Tanya McGinnity, and this week I'm joined by Scott Edelstein. Scott has a new book out titled The User's Guide to Spiritual Teachers, and I can't think of a more timely book. Um, so settle in and enjoy our conversation. Hello, listeners, and with me today we have Scott Edelstein, who is the author of a new book that's come out called The User's Guide to Spiritual Teachers. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me, Tanya. I'm very glad to be here. Great. Um, well, I've been reading quite a few of your books, actually. I have to admit to being a fangirl, so <laughs> get that out of the way. <laughs> you, you tend to uh, dig into subjects that are uh, uh, a bit weighty and a bit uh, fraught with uh, with a lot of conflict and confusion for the modern practitioner, so I, I just want to uh, to thank you for wading into the deep waters. I'm, uh, I'm not only glad to do it, I feel honored to do it, and uh, I felt that somebody needed to do it. Excellent. So I, I guess going way back, rewind way back, uh, pre-book, what got you started um, in terms of Buddhist practice and study? Can you, uh, can you kind of let me know where it all began for you? Sure. The, the, really, I would want to answer it not just in terms of Buddhism, because uh, I was raised Jewish, mm. And I had an interest in religion very early on, but not even so much about religion as in the questions that it raises, the uh, uh, the approaches that it offers. Um, and, and then over time, essentially what happens is you keep asking these questions. Um, in particular, I had an interest in meditation. And back then, I mean, we're only talking. I'm 62 now. And so uh, when I first started getting interested was about 40 years ago. But in some ways, that was a millennium ago, because back then, you could not find uh, Jewish meditation. It just, it, it waxes and wanes throughout history. There was a time when meditation was an essential part of mystical Judaism. Um, in, in Israel, for example, there are, there's a famous cave where um, a well-known rabbi used to meditate with with his crew. Um, and in fact, you could find meditation occasionally in Catholicism, but in, in, in what you would find in mainstream America, um, meditation was almost nowhere. So if I were 40 years younger, who knows if I would have even approached Buddhism. I might have headed straight for Jewish meditation, um, which, by the way, I used to be a member of a Jewish meditation group, and it's exactly the same as Vipassana, as Zen, as Tibetan, you know, there's little twists and turns here and there, but it's very much the same practice. So I was interested in it, um, found my way into Buddhism. Uh, from there, of course, it's very difficult to get into any religion seriously and turn your back on all the others. So I would call myself very much ecumenical, but serious ecumenical. Um, I'm not going to talk with anyone about um, about the rapture, I'm not going to talk, uh, have arguments about um, what one particular word in the Torah means. Uh, I'm interested in, in the, the really essential stuff about any religion, which is um, how do we engage with each other, with the world, and with this moment. Excellent. And it, would you say a lot of your exploration came out of really a sense of ethics and how we deal with one and, and one another and how religions sort of lay the framework with, for that, but in some ways, sometimes us fallible humans kind of <laughs> ruin it. 
Well, ethics is an essential part of, of any religion, um, and in terms of things that some people might not call religion. Um, 12-step programs, for example, which I would call religion, are, um, are very much concerned with ethics. There are groups of atheists and agnostics that have clear ethical frameworks. I would call those uh, religions. Um, it's possible to have a very clear set of ethics that's completely separate from some of the other religious questions, but I would call those religions or kind of quasi-religions, uh, because you can't get through life without having some kind of ethical or moral code that you follow. It doesn't have to be written in some sacred text, but it needs to be uh, part of how you live your life, and it might change. I would like to say that the reason that I came to these two books, um, The User's Guide to Spiritual Teachers and Sex and the Spiritual Teacher, because ethics is an important part of each book, is that as a writer, what I often do is look for the gaps in the culture of what, what is not being addressed that needs to be addressed. And none of this stuff was being addressed in a kind of detailed or systematic way, only in short articles or short essays here and there. And uh, so then I did research and I saw that, yeah, there wasn't much out there. And then I felt both an interest and an obligation to fill that gap. Did you notice it in terms of um, generationally it's always been present or is there something, you know, within our modern culture and maybe an increase in um, spiritual seekers looking for a guru or looking for a teacher or looking for that community or sangha that they can, uh, I guess, feel that sense of fulfillment or whatever it is they're seeking? Have you noticed it being something related to an increase, or have we always been <laughs> this way? That's a great question, and I, I really have to say yes to both sides of it, and let me explain why. Um, of course, things wax and wane. Um, one of the reasons, for example, that um, uh, meditation was not part of standard Judaism, and by the way, it's quite common in mainstream Judaism in this country now, um, and it's waxed and waned uh, throughout this, the years and centuries. Um, and so there are all these trends um, in terms of every religion and in terms of how people encounter religion. I mean, if you go back to the ancient Greeks, you could, there was, uh, you could walk down uh, a main thoroughfare and it would be just like a mall, but it, uh, a shopping mall. But what was for sale was a bunch of philosophies um, and ways of being in the world that all these philosophers would be espousing. And then you would you would pick one and you might follow somebody or you might pick a couple or you might try some out. Um, when I was uh, young, there weren't a lot of options. So when Buddhism essentially hit the mainstream, um, I was certainly ready for it. And many Americans were ready for it. So, I mean, of course, it, it seems like. Um, when a religion or, or a tradition or even a new idea comes from afar, all these people will flock to it. And we look down the event chain and go, well, what makes these people suddenly so interested in X, Y, and Z? And it's because X, Y, and Z wasn't here before mm. for them to be interested in. Um, so in that sense, it's really hard to, to talk about which came first. You know, which came first, the iPhone or the need for an iPhone? Interesting. And I, I guess in, in looking at, you know, the the kind of first wave of American Buddhism in the sense of, you know, all of the 
all of the groups that were going over to India and getting, you know, <laughs> direct experience with teachers and then teachers moving here and, and, and setting up, uh, their sanghas. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's interesting to look, I guess, at the makeup then, um, as to what people were seeking. It may not have really changed to now, perhaps, in terms of, you know, a lot of us at the end of the day, it's, you know, to find a way to work with suffering. <laughs> so, yeah. and whether that's the yeah. 1960s version of suffering yeah. or the 2000s version of suffering, it's still suffering. I would argue that it's, it, um, I think you've, you've hit it. I would expand it a little bit to say it's all about how do we get through the day without making things worse for ourselves or each other mm. um, while supporting each other. One of the things that did attract me about Buddhism, and in particular, um, uh, you know, I think the, the Zen teacher Steve Hagen has the uh, what I think is the best take um, on this this term dukkha, which is t- typically uh, translated as suffering. And it's true that that suffering is an aspect of it, but he translates it as a wheel out of kilter, which is where that's the original root from which dukkha comes from. Um, in the, I, you know, I, it, dukkha, it's pronounced the same in Pali and Sanskrit, and I honestly don't know which came first, uh, the Pali or Sanskrit term, I believe the Pali term. Uh, but what's so important about it being the wheel out of kilter is it's the sense that something is wrong or not right or not whole or not complete or not the way it should be. Uh, and that's a particular uh, kind of doorway into what we would call suffering that I think is much more expansive. Mm. Um, I've heard it, uh, you know, the Yiddish word surus, which is sometimes translated as vexation or aggravation. Um, you know, that's a form of suffering too, but it has a whole bunch of different other resonances. I guess one of my biggest questions out of reading your book and out of reading <laughs> other books that relate to getting into Vajrayana, for instance, and some of the kind of woo, um, you know, you need a teacher for, but in some ways, I sometimes ask myself, why enter into a relationship with a teacher? Because, oh my goodness, after, after reading this and, and seeing the, the potential that exists for, um, you know, damage or, um, you know, giving yourself over all of these things that, you know, you, you go from the, the less extreme all the way to some of the stories that you do hear about. And I guess Mm -hmm. my question is what really are the benefits for somebody who, uh, you know, to enter into this kind of special relationship? So what you're calling a special relationship, of course, is a whole continuum of relationships that is, uh, the student-teacher relationship can take as many different forms as there are uh, pairs of people or groups of people to create those relationships. Um, it's, it's sort of like when people say, well, what exactly is Islam anyway? Or what exactly is Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism? And there's no, if you had to describe what it was to an alien, you would, a space alien, mm-hmm. you would probably eventually say, well... It's a whole bunch of different things. Um, it's a big tent. It's an umbrella. And under it is, is just this diverse array of things, including a thousand, if not a hundred thousand contradictions, sometimes in the same human heart. So the what I try to do in both books is give people a sense of the range of those relationships, 
what keeps a, such a relationship healthy, regardless of how close or how distant it is? What are the warning signs of an unhealthy relationship? And, uh, of course, an unhealthy relationship can come from the teacher's direction, from the student's direction, or more commonly, from both. Mm. You mentioned Vajrayana, for example, and if I may, may say, so Vajrayana, for, for folks who are not familiar with it, that's, that's a stream of Buddhism um, that um, arose in Tibet out of, out of the religion, the more indigenous religion called Bon, typically spelled B-O-N. Um, and so there have been all kinds uh, of trouble in Tibetan Buddhism in terms of abuse, in terms of uh, teachers being put on pedestals. Yet, let, let, let me give you two extremes that were simultaneously presented to me. Mm. I, um, a couple years ago, I did it was on a retreat. It was a Vajrayana retreat, and it was by uh, Yonggi Minhir, mm-hmm. who is a well-known Tibetan teacher. Um, although he's something of an outlier, even though he's very popular, he is, uh, in many ways, Americanizing Mm. Um, or modernizing, or in any way, at least mingurizing. <laughs> so as this group of Tibetan teachers were walking to this lecture hall to give a talk, so, some people were given rose petals who scattered them at the Vajrayana teacher's feet. And I, I rolled my eyes and thought, <laughs> oh man, this is so bogus. Um, Yet the person who runs that organization, Edwin Kelly, he used to run IMS, uh, Insight Meditation uh, Society, which is, of course, the, uh, what Jack Kornfield and um, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg uh, started. Um, he is one of the most down-to-earth people I have ever met. You talk to him. You would never, and he's very friendly and straightforward and, uh, and honest and, and all those things. And yet here were these two opposite things um, right in my face at the same time. To which I would say, welcome to religion, welcome <laughs> to activities, and welcome to the human heart. And ultimately, each of us has to make that choice between, um, you know, if they were to ask me to scatter the rose petals, I would say, no, thank you. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of other people to do it. Uh, but, but I'm always happy to talk to Edwin, who will always um, be honest and straightforward and very down to earth. I, I find those kinds of stories where you get into situations where you're either taken away and kind of transformed out of yourself into like, oh my goodness, you know, who is this person? I, I've caught myself with certain teachers that I'm like, they did what? Or that, they they said that? And, and, and sometimes it's turning the mirror on myself and looking at my own kind of projection of what I think is palatable or perfect or ideal or desirable in a teacher versus who they actually are. <laughs> Well, if you're serious about getting to the bottom of things, serious about experiencing how things actually are, then one of the places that, well, some of many of the places it takes you is to your own preconceptions and misconceptions about your teacher, about yourself, about the world, about religion. Um, One of the sobering things for me is I have learned over the years that the, the very role of spiritual teacher attracts people with personality disorders. Uh, (laughs) And so do most of the helping professions, but in particular, 
so does uh, a spiritual teacher does. Now, it also attracts people who have uh, who are generous, who are kind, who are thoughtful, who are um, uh, you know bodhisattva types. Mm. But when you think about it, um, it, it, it makes perfect sense that a lot of narcissists, a lot of sociopaths, um, a lot of predators, um, a lot of uh, libertines would be attracted to that role because they get to feel like they're special. Everybody else thinks they're special. Uh, and so one of the, the main themes in both my books is how important it is to understand that the teacher is every bit as human as you are. And if they purport to be anything more or less than human, something's really wrong. And if you are trying to be something more or less than fully human, then uh, you're probably headed in the wrong direction. You speak a lot to self-inquiry and that students need to really ask a lot of those hard questions or do a lot of that own kind of self-awareness exercise of why am I throwing rose petals or why am I resistant to throwing rose petals or why am I prostrating or why am I drinking this funny liquid or whatever it is that you may be asked to do. You know, I, I think that is what I appreciate the most about your book is that it's it's less about turning it around to being a subservient individual who does everything and, and does not say no and does not question, but it's more about you know, you're, you're empowering the wisdom of our own human nature to kind of go, well, what is that about? <laughs> it's important to question. That is the single most important uh, quality of any, what you could call spiritual search, uh, any religion, is the willingness, if not the urgency, to question. And when you do, you find, uh, you, you find all kinds of surprises. May I give you one that I'm struggling with right now? Definitely. And I'm struggling with it in a good way. But I'm 62 years old, which means I grew up in a particular time with a particular set of assumptions about the world, which are now being uh, furiously uh, challenged. But I didn't realize they were assumptions, and this is what we do um, in terms of uh, religion, in terms of spiritual teachers, in terms of ourselves, in terms of our place in the world. So I was born in 1954, which was relatively soon after the end of World War II, and the, uh, it was a time of enormous, uh, for, for many people in America, not for all people in America, uh, of enormous prosperity, of enormous opportunity, um, and, so, and of enormous recovery. And we were told, I remember being told this explicitly as well as implicitly, that the world had learned its lesson after World War II, and that that was the low point in human history, and from now on, things were just going to keep getting better. And that was an assumption that went so deep inside me that I didn't realize until the last year that I was living according to that assumption. And I was looking at the world, things like uh, the election of Obama, things like the Arab Spring, things like the, uh, the fall of communism in, in, in Europe, all these things, I was fitting into that narrative of we, we're getting smarter, we're getting better, we're progressing. Um, and so when we watch what's happened over the last year or so, uh, with you know the 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 rise in xenophobia around the world, the rise in xenophobia, people flocking um, to support dictators, um, 
countries coming apart, this long list of things, the Arab Spring turning out to, to result in one mess after another. Um, I've had to say, guess what? I This story that I had accepted and been taught about the trajectory of history was incorrect. Mm. I was fed it and I bought it. And this is what we have to do over and over. If we are serious about these kinds of questions, we have to ask it about uh, our theories of knowledge, about cosmology, about uh, you know, all the aspects of religion. And we find out over and over that we were wrong. We were wrong about what our teachers are. We were wrong about our relationship to our teachers. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. If you're wrong, the best thing you can find out is that you were wrong. And it's humbling to discover that, at least in my case, I was wrong about a lot. Yeah, you're not alone <laughs> with everything you've <laughs> described. I'm even here in Canada, and I'm like, yes, I feel the pain, too. But I, I definitely hear you, I think, in terms of um, a lot of pain that comes out of people that have followed a tradition or a teacher. And then, for example, there is a scandal or, you know, there is financial misappropriation or, or what have you. And everything that you thought you believed to be the case is no longer the case. And, and that could go either way, whether it be, you know, something we discover that's completely horrible about our worldview or in some cases through just, you know, spiritual or, or psychological development, you discover that the world is much bigger than you actually yes. thought it to be or yes. less fearful. Um, so Good. yeah, I, I definitely agree with you in terms of the, the opportunity for, you know, it to, I think regardless whether it's bad or good, it's a shock and it's a shock to the ego and it's a shock to everything that you hold and thought you held. And it, it's, I mean, I, I never look at it as, you know, it's almost like the people that say, oh, well, Trump will be very good for punk music, you know, cause we'll have a rebel songs or it'll be very good for folk music. And then you look at it and you're like, yeah, but we're still, you know, it's not that good right now. <laughs> but, but there is, I guess, that, that silver lining that can be said about, you know, better now to discover that maybe the philosophy or the, uh, the teacher or the tradition that you kind of hooked your hat on isn't the one for you than, you know, on your deathbed and going, I should have. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <I> shouldn't have. <laughs> Well, and every tradition is going to have its strengths and weaknesses um, and its particular uh, sort of sensibilities and energy and vibe, and every teacher as well. And there is no tradition that is going to be free of scandal. Mm. Um, I've just been reading Sam Harris's The, uh, the End of Faith. I was reading the last chapter in which um, he talks about, he makes the case that Buddhism is inherently different from um, uh, the, the uh, Abrahamic religion, you know, Islam, uh, Judaism, Christianity. And he cites an old Buddhist text um, that has a very mystical bent to it. And the case he's trying to make is that you're not, the Buddhists are not going to fall for that same stuff. Well, who, who is murdering, raping, and um, exiling the Rohingya? right now. It's Buddhists. Yep. So, Sam, uh, I think you got to eat your words. <laughs> you heard uh, it right uh, here, folks. <laughs> humans, 
the human heart is the human heart, regardless of uh, what tradition, what teacher. There are wonderful teachers. There's great wisdom. All those things in every tradition, and you're also going to find all kinds of charlatans. Um, um, and sociopaths and predators and narcissists in every tradition. And there just is no substitute for moment-by-moment engagement um, with your life, with the life of the world, and with being discerning, asking those questions and making your own best judgment, living into it. People tend to come to religion or any spiritual practice in one of two ways. Either they want to soothe themselves, and that's the word you use, or they want to get to the bottom of things. If they want to soothe themselves, they're going to go in the wrong direction because there is nothing, I mean, temporarily you know, in the short term for, you know, it's nice to have community, etc. cetera. Um, so here and there, I'm not saying one should never be soothed. But if that is primarily what you're looking for, religion uh, or serious religion is not going to get you there. Because um, it's going to ultimately take you, in terms of the inquiry, toward what what's real, what's actually going on. Um, but most people, in fact, are looking for soothing. They're not looking to get to the bottom of the things. If you are looking to get to the bottom of things, then you will never be satisfied with soothing for the, uh, for the reasons that you've just uh, touched upon. That said, it seems to me that any genuine religion, anyone worth itself, plus any genuine set of ethics, any genuine code for living, whether you call it a religion or not, has to be able to deal with life at its worst, not just when things are going good. So it has to be able to deal with war, with famine, um, with people who abuse one another, with how, how do we live our lives in a way that's as healthy as possible, as loving as, as possible, as discerning as possible, as wise as possible, when our fellow human beings or the circumstances are at their absolute worst. And I actually think that creates a wonderful opportunity for Buddhism because that is, and I'm not talking about the pseudo-Buddhism that's being sold, just like the pseudo-yoga that's being sold as a way to stretch your body and make your and make your body feel good. Not, there's nothing wrong with stretching your body. There's nothing wrong with making your body feel good. But that is not how, what the original, um, uh, the, the, set, the whole set of yogas, the many different yogas from which what we call yoga emerged. And that was not how Buddhism emerged, as a way to soothe or as a way to just be happy. It was a way to deal with the worst aspects of life in the moment. That said, I'd like to say one more thing, and thank you for your patience throughout all this. And that is, we are so used to um, what we call activism as a separate thing from what people are doing in less obvious ways. And yes, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of Buddhist activism now. There's the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. There's, of course, the stuff that Bernie Glassman has, has essentially started and, and is, is growing out from, from him. And there, and there are others as well. But this, I, I, I think it is... Um, I think it's not correct to, to say that activism isn't going on. A lot of it is going on, but it's not necessarily going on under the banner of or a bunch of Buddhist activists. Mm. Um, certainly, I consider the writing of my book, of these books, but also many of the other books that I work on. Um, some are under my own name. I'm also a ghostwriter, um, and I've worked on some 
books that I consider very important, that I consider part of activism. But I don't hold up a sign that says, uh, I am a Buddhist, and uh, I am an activist. And so there are, there are, I think there's a lot of what you would call Buddhist activism going on without the brand of activism or the brand of Buddhism. But feel free to argue with me about that. You touched on it, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, I'm now questioning why I need to have that brand of Buddhist activism put on it. And it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. So that's, that's helpful in the sense of, you know, as long as there's results, it doesn't matter where there's results come from. <laughs> so that's, yep. that's very helpful. Um, Do you mind if I give a quick example? Yes. Yes. So, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned Steve Hagen before, and I, I belong to his group, which is called Dharma Field. And about five years ago, he passed the baton to another teacher, someone who had uh, been his student for years, and everybody respect, respected. Her name was Bev. And she was the head teacher at Dharma Field for about a year and a half. And after a year and a half, she said, I now feel called to do everything I can to uh, limit sex trafficking in this country and, if possible, in the world. And so she said, I'm stepping down. She gave us like a month's notice, and that's what I'm going to do with my life. Um, now, who knows? If she, I don't even know if she's still doing that. But that was what she was called to. And you could certainly call that Buddhist activism, but it was done under the banner of, quote, leaving Buddhism. To be, to be an activist. But of course, from it wasn't that at all. It was the next natural step in her life, in her living into the world as she saw it. And to her, um, uh, being as helpful and useful and loving as she could be. Wonderful. No, I, uh, yeah. It's interesting in, in mentioning how teachers do move on and and the ripple effect that that does have in communities because you do touch on that in your book and I did find that that quite interesting as well in terms of how people deal with that kind of change and sometimes that kind of change isn't as uh, easy once we feel like we've invested in this teacher and we know this teacher and you know we we've had these relationships and then you know, our world completely <laughs> goes a different way and uh, our teacher leaves and has a, a noble cause to, uh, to move on to. And then we start again. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing to also think of teachers in terms of, you know, viewing them as everyday humans as well, like you said earlier, and that their perspectives on the world, you know, draw them into different ways and different callings too. that, that, uh, that they also change too. And that's really the only thing we can count on is we're both changing as students and teachers. <laughs> yes. Yes. If I were to look back at, at myself 30 years ago, um, I would, I would say, I don't, I don't see how these two people could be the same person. Um, and of course we're not the same person because we're constantly changing. This whole notion of being a person is a, is a construct. Uh, uh, and, because everything changes, that means our relationships will change, our teachers will change, our needs will change, our expectations will change, things will fall away, new things will arise. Um, and there may be times when we don't have a teacher, and there may be times when we need to not have a teacher. 
I think that in some ways looks at, you know, my own personal experience of a lot of what I had learned was basically when you take a teacher, you're in it. You know, that, that's yours. <laughs> Welcome to the marriage. Now it's time for monogamy. <laughs> Settle down. And that's your one teacher for, uh, you know, the rest of time. And, and, you know, there, there are certain protocols around that. And, uh, it, it's interesting to hear your perspective and even just reading about that too, of knowing that, you know, you're, you're not married in, you know, and, and there is the room to, of course, you know, with people changing and growing and needs changing and aging and, and people moving and all of that, that you could never really expect to remain with one person from, you know, the point of meeting them all the way through to the point of you both passing on. <laughs> so, Well, that's the central story of Buddhism and also the central paradox of Buddhism. So here was a fellow, Gotama, who was, pardon me, who was raised to be a prince, and the entire, his entire life was set out before him in a particular way. Um, and he did not have to do anything to be a prince. He was already a prince. And he said, nah, and he, and he left. And then he was with two teachers after that. And each one of them said, you are my star pupil. You are the one. You are the successor. You are the shining star. And in both cases, Gautama said, nah, and he left. And it was only when he had put aside everything that everybody else had tried to endow upon him, when he was sitting alone, teacherless, powerless, um, um, uh, royaltyless, as it were, familyless, that he had his great awakening. And so uh, whenever I hear a Buddhist talking about Oh, it's it's so important to have this uh, to not uh, question your teacher or to stay with your teacher or to 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 not be disloyal to your teacher. I want to say, go back and read Gotama's story. Mm. Very interesting. Do you think in some ways people kind of treat teachers as a crutch or they may lack either independent thinking or the bravery to kind of question and, and, and it may be a sense of almost like a personality or a psychological makeup that may make them the ideal prey for a sociopathic teacher who is looking for that kind of person that doesn't ask questions and sits and, you know, that's it and goes in and pays their dues and, and doesn't, you know, acts very deferential. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, there's such variety. I've had the good fortune, and this is part of what enabled me to write these books, is that I know a lot of spiritual teachers, and uh, a lot of them are friends. And so I'm able, uh, over the years, I've been able to talk to them off duty, and they pretty much see everything. Um, it, it's tempting to want to create a broad brush of, what students are like. I mean, certainly when you do have, there are, of course, sociopaths, narcissists, predators, and so on out there. And of course, they tend to attract the people who are um, uh, most psychologically wounded, most misinformed, um, uh, who have daddy or mommy issues in every orifice. And, and, and I don't mean to disparage those people. That's, that's what they're hoping to heal, but what they, they wind up wounding themselves further or being wounded further. Mm. Um, but let's put those folks aside, uh, those, those completely corrupt teachers aside. 
And when you have teachers who they might have, they might have plenty of faults, they might have limitations, um, but they have some real abilities and some real insight, and they can be of, of genuine value, at least to some people in some ways, they see, they see the whole range. Um, and this isn't just true about spiritual teachers. This is about anybody who's got a role uh, as a clergy. I was just speaking to a Presbyterian minister just a couple days ago, um, and we were saying, you know, she'll have, she'll have two meetings with people, and the first one might say, well, can we compare the soteriology, you know, the theory of salvation between Reinhold Niebuhr and Augustine? And the next will say, do you think I'm ready for the rapture? Well, you know, those are two very different <laughs> approaches to, to Christianity. Um, and so we have, I think in every tradition, you see the whole range. And a good teacher is able to, to meet the student where they are, speak to them where they are, and, um, and, and engage them and help them along in, in ways that help the person be more human, regardless of where they are. That's wonderful. I, I think that was another one of the statements that I that really resonated from the book and, and was kind of leading me to that question around what should a spiritual teacher offer um, students. And I, I really think that, you know, it, it touched my heart to hear that it's really about enabling students to become more human, to become more authentic, to become more mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's very powerful because in some ways, you know, it's, uh, it's that, I guess, in itself is a sense of Buddhist activism in terms of igniting that flame for somebody to become more themselves in a world that's kind of telling them not to. <laughs> it's interesting, though, this very phrase, and I, can, I, I used it in my books and I've used it in this interview, of becoming more yourself. That is a uh, that very phrase, which uh, will not ask us to do, but we could spend an hour just on that, because to become more yourself is actually to become simultaneously less yourself, because if you're growing, it means you're changing it to somebody you weren't. So the paradox of becoming more yourself, you're simultaneously becoming less of the of the person who you were in the previous moment. Um, And. It's a, it's because it's a process of living into and discovery. There are many ways to describe it. One of them is becoming more yourself. Another way is becoming the person you never imagined you would be. Another is living into the unknown. Another is being God smacked by the things that you, you, you didn't realize before. And they're all ways of describing the same thing. Uh, I'm reading now Yuval Levin's book, uh, The Fractured Republic, and he makes the point, which is a really interesting point, that religion in mid-century, mid-20th century America was not about becoming more yourself. It was about uh, fitting the mold, speaking very generally. Mm. And so this notion of becoming more yourself is very much a double-edged sword, and it can mean ossifying into... um, you know, you can use religion to not change, to not grow, to set limits around yourself, and to say, this is who I am and I'm not going to change. I mean, that's what fundamentalism is, mm. whether it's the Taliban or whether it's um, the Westboro Baptist Church, um, or for that matter, uh, the Chabad, uh, among us Jews. 
And so that that phrase, become more yourself, you go, well, I actually, this is who I really am. I am a fill in the blank. And then you make yourself smaller. Mm. But you can also use that same phrase to describe an act of discovery, of opening, um, and of, uh, what can I say, sort of um, endless surprise. Becoming that person who throws the flower petals around, perhaps, <laughs> instead of the person who doesn't. <laughs> and, you know, you could be, you can also get stuck as the person, I would never throw flower petals. Mm. I'm, if, if you are, you, there are so many places to get stuck and there are yeah. so many opportunities for opening as well. And it's amazing, I think, when you can touch on that and and see those moments. I think for myself, it was a profound instance when seeing the Dalai Lama and Alanis was the opening act. I'm using air uh-huh. quotes when I say that. And uh-huh. I'm not traditionally a big Alanis fan. So I was uh-huh. sitting in this very large coliseum. Alanis came out and she mm-hmm. had a guitar and I'm like, oh goodness, no! <laughs> let me let me just get through this song, you know, Helenus. And she sang, and they had this big jumbotron, and they were panning the crowd. And uh-huh. here I am with my you know punk rock hard music uh-huh. aesthetic, like, and she's singing, and it's beautiful, and it's <laughs> touching my heart, and I'm crying, and I uh-huh. can't stop crying, and I'm like so driven by her like acoustic set. Uh-huh. And I'm also in such fear that I'm going to be captured up on the Jumbotron <laughs> and all my friends will see me crying at this Alanis Morissette acoustic. And and it was just this moment of like, who do you think you are? You know, <laughs> who, who are you trying to prove, you know, and, and what difference does it make if, you know, so now I will fully admit to people I am converted to the Church of Alanis. I, I hold no, like... There, there are many things that I would used to kind of go, nope. And now it's like, what the heck are you telling me? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know, let's, let's not forget about her that she played a bit part. I believe the film was Dogma, yes. in which God was a big fan of skee-ball. And she has an encounter with God in that. Do you remember that film? I do. I do. I think uh, she's quite transformative. So <laughs> <laughs> I am completely open to whatever spiritual transformation that Alanis may <laughs> offer me in any kind of spiritual sense. I've now. <laughs> but it's it's amazing, I think, too, in looking at spiritual teachers can be found anywhere and, and in very unlikely places, too, and Sometimes, you know, I've had experiences where I'm like judging a very cantankerous, cranky teacher that I've known for some time. And I've been like, and I have this mold of who he is in my mind. And then all of a sudden that goes completely out the window. I'm like, <laughs> I've sat and I've grumbled about why he's bothering me. And at, I, at the end of it, after I've kind of sat with why he's bothered me, I then look at it and it's more of a, a, direct inquiry on myself and why I'm so bothered versus like this flippant remark he may make or this comedic joke that he may make that I take entirely all wrong or <laughs> so it's, it's powerful. I often wonder, like maybe I'm destined to, you know, my teacher is quite lovely and he's not overly challenging, but when I look at it, I'm like, am I destined to maybe need a teacher that is like needling me and, you know, uh-huh. And, you know, is, is Donald Trump that teacher? I don't know. <laughs> Another thing you spoke of that I thought was interesting was just in looking at, if you are looking at 
finding a spiritual community or a teacher to look at the practitioners within that community because they're somewhat of a reflection of that teacher. Do you find that really the case in a lot of, you know, your, your uh, experience and in, in what you've, uh, what you've seen? Well, very generally, yes. I mean, this is um, the issue whenever you have an open door, which I would hope just about every spiritual community would, um, anybody can walk in through that door. And so um, if, if you walk in one morning, you never know exactly who will have walked in with you at that particular time. But if you keep coming back to a particular community or teacher, you will find over time that there certainly the narcissists will attract people who narcissists attract, you know, people who want to, um, uh, who, who typically have parental issues, who they, they want somebody to follow. And you'll see that the teacher will be asking for obedience um, uh, and they will not be putting the needs um, of, of the student first. I mean, that's the, the easiest way to spot a narcissist is are, are, are they acting in service to their students or is it the other way around? Um, so in a very broad way, yes, I think you can tell if you look over time at a particular group, uh, you'll be able to tell where the teacher, whether the teacher is generally legit or generally not. Obviously, teachers can lose their way. Things can happen. Um, I think in particular of a, a Zen teacher, Joko Beck. Uh, she wrote a couple of wonderful books. She did all kinds of great things in her life, but she, as she got old, she came down with Alzheimer's. Mm. And uh, because that's what a lot of human beings do. And it um, doesn't matter how wise you are, Alzheimer's is Alzheimer's. And uh, by the end, she, you know, she was not thinking straight uh, because that's what Alzheimer's does. So you have to take everything in, in the larger context. Um, you, I, I would say wonderful things about Joko Beck most of her life. And then, well, she, she got sick. Mm. Do, you, do you see, I guess, in terms of carrying the lineage, in terms of teachers that, that have you know, those principles and solid teachings and treating mm-hmm. their students and, and in, in encouraging their students and empowering their students and bringing mm-hmm. out the best in their students, um, I guess that continuation would live on, um, you know, post Alzheimer's that it resides with the teachers that are now living and, and carrying on the tradition. Boy, that's, it's very interesting that you would bring that up mm. uh, with Joko back. Well, <laughs> so here's the thing is that, um, I mean, everybody, th- th- this whole notion of a lineage Mm. is made up. I mean, yes, there is a kind of baton that is passed, but of course that baton is not a thing. Uh, Every person teaches in their own way, and and ideally all a lineage is is somebody with some discernment and insight recognizing discernment and insight in somebody else. And they might... Ex- express that in a completely different way from their teacher. In fact, I hope they would. If they were do it in the exact same way, um, that's clearly a limitation. Um, one of my early teachers was um, a Zen guy from Japan named Dainin Katagiri, mm-hmm. who, uh, and he had a bunch of scandals around him. Uh, but I thought there were all these things that were unique to him and then over the years, I saw a bunch of other Japanese Soto Zen teachers who had been trained in the same monasteries 
And man, they had some of the same terms, same inflections, same gestures. It was like watching um, uh, remember Louis Farrakhan and his, uh, you know, he he had a bunch of people who were very, you know, very sincere Muslims, but they all dressed the same. They all talked the same. Uh, Sasaki Roshi, the uh, who was also a, a serial um, abuser, but uh, a lot of his students acted the same, talked the same, etc. So uh, that was a a big shock to me when I realized things that I thought were somehow authentically Katagiri were actually just the Japanese Soto Eheji brand. Okay, fascinating. It's I could talk to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> And likely you probably have another book coming out, so <laughs> I'm um, sure we could have. Well, and you, you ask, you've asked wonderful questions. Um, I mean, it, it, it's been a real pleasure uh, uh, to discuss this with you. You've, you've really gotten at the, at the, the essential things that, that my books try to get to, so and I'm very grateful for that. Definitely, and I'm very grateful, I mean, for this book. Uh, it, it, it's almost uh, the book I needed before the, uh, the last book, which was Sex and the Spiritual Teacher, so it's, it's very it's very inspiring to see you wade into these issues. For listeners, if they do want to pick up a copy of The Use's Guide to Spiritual Teacher or your last book, Six and the Spiritual Teacher, where would they be able to find these uh, these documents? Sure. Well, first of all, any online bookseller will have uh, will have both, whether you go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, or Powell's or anyone you like. Uh, you'll find it easily there. Any brick-and-mortar store can also order either book. If they don't have it in stock, they can usually get it within 48 hours, either or both. Um, and then if people want to learn a little more about each book, in addition to going to the online vendors and reading the pages uh, on those books, they can just go to either scottedelstein.com or the spiritualteachersite.com, um, which is a portal uh, into information about the books. Uh, it's got other interviews that will soon have this interview up on it as well. Excellent. And the um, the website, too, is quite extensive in terms of the amount of resources that you have for people that may be looking for help or guidance. Uh, so I definitely encourage anybody that uh, is looking for a spiritual teacher or who's felt wronged by a spiritual teacher to either pick up the books or, or certainly to check out your website and uh, and uh, look at all the great resources and materials that you do have there. So I want to close things off by thanking you for uh, the time we've spent. Uh, like I said, I could go on and on, and hopefully maybe we'll uh, we'll have another <laughs> version together. I, I'd be happy to come back, Tanya. Make you, you, a regular, make you a regular guest. Sure. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Thank you, Tanya. Take care. And there you have it, friends. Another episode of Dharmage is in the can. I said interesting so much, but again, it was a very interesting conversation, one that has been very uh, eye-opening for me, very essential, one that I needed way back when I uh, began this whole Dharma journey. Um, so I hope you appreciate it as well. And here's to next time. Take care. <laughs>